0: Knock. Hi. Hello and welcome to Knock Knock Eye with Dr. Glocken Flecken. This is the time. These are the episodes where, where where I get to talk about all things eyeballs and nobody can stop me. I can I can talk about anything I want. I can go into as much depth as I want about any eyeball topic and believe it or not there's a lot of things to talk about with eyeballs. Uh, and, uh, and and so I, I love, I love doing these. So wherever you're watching or listening, uh, get ready because we got a doozy of a topic here. I'm going to try to get through as much of this as I can today, but what I want to start with is uh, a, a little bit of feedback. I finally, we have a, as of this recording, uh, we have a few episodes out and, uh, I finally, I've gotten some, some feedback from people, from people on Patreon, from emails, uh, YouTube comments, uh, it's all coming in. People are loving I, it a little bit of a surprise to me. I wasn't sure how people would react to, to all this eyeball knowledge. Um, uh, but, cause I have so much of it in my head and I was like, who really wants to hear about this type of thing? But people do. People are interested in in eye stuff. I guess it's kind of weird, which makes sense. Uh, And uh, uh, so people are enjoying it, which which makes me happy because then it just gives me more motivation to talk about all those weird things that can happen to your eyes. Uh, And so uh, the first few episodes have been pants patients, uh, which again are uh, uh, patients that come in uh, to the emergency department. And then I get the call and it's uh, an emergency enough. it's, It's severe enough. Uh, dangerous enough where I have to put on my pants to come in to see the patient right away. Uh, so we've done a few of the pants patients already. Uh, and uh, so thank you all for for telling me what you think, for giving me support and giving me other other ideas for content, for topics, for weird things that are happening to your eyes that you can't explain. I'm happy to explain them, I have a list of like a hundred things already, questions, comments, uh, just, other, just random thoughts, uh, about eyes. And so I'm going to just work my way through this. I'm going to keep recording these episodes. You're going to get one every week and we'll just see how far it takes us. Um, uh, also right off the bat here, uh, because I've been getting a lot of feedback, I can issue any corrections uh, that come up, because uh, I, I do want to be accurate, as accurate as I can with all this eyeball stuff. Uh, and so there's one thing that I, I, I did not get right during the chemical injury episode. Um, and for, for I don't know why I did this. It, it, it's, it's stupid. But uh, bleach, I mentioned it's sulfurous acid, uh, but that's not generally what bleach is bleach is in its purest form bleach the chemical composition of bleach is sodium hypochlorite uh which is a definitely a base it's like ph is like 11 13 like it's it's almost as basic as it gets uh and so we're you know but honestly regardless of whether it's it, it's a base, but doesn't matter what it is. Don't don't get it in your eyes. Don't get any household chemicals in your eyes. But I definitely misspoke. I did not uh, get that one right. And so, uh, uh, thank you for holding me accountable, everybody. Uh, we strive for accuracy here in the Glock and Fluck and Household. Um, what else? Oh, one other thing I wanted to do before we get into our topic today, which is retinal detachment. Because I a lot, so many of you want to hear about retinal detachments, which I'm happy to oblige. Uh, got a lot, a lot of suggestions, a lot of, of requests for retinal detachments. So before we get into that, though, I realize like I probably have, uh, I, I need to like establish myself as like a bona fide expert uh you know you all know me as this person that like dresses up in all these different specialties I wear costumes and record myself alone in my bedroom or office uh and uh that doesn't always of uh, you know uh it doesn't always come across that I'm like an actual expert in my field uh and so I thought I would just give you a little idea about what training to become an ophthalmologist is like so I finished my college, my, my four years of uh, undergraduate at Texas Tech University. I majored in cell and molecular biology. I, I, I's, uh, it's it's as, as, as exciting as it sounds, everyone. It's, it's cell biology. That's what I did. Uh, I was really pigeonholing myself into like one thing. Um, and so uh, I was like med school all the way. And then I went to Dartmouth. I got my MD. Uh, And during uh, my, my, my medical education did not get exposed to a lot of ophthalmology. In fact, I chose ophthalmology very late in my fourth year of med school. And so we don't get a lot of eyeball education. It's like maybe one lecture that you immediately forget. And then, uh, but I was like, I, I somehow just like found myself in an ophthalmology elective and I loved it because you get to like sit down. That's a big part of it, honestly. I'd I love it. it's like going from standing all the time in whatever, everything to just getting to sit down for a while and do your work. It's awesome. Uh, and I got to like go home at a reasonable hour every day and develop meaningful relationships with my family. That's another thing. But, uh, I decided on ophthalmology and then went to Iowa and did a, uh, one year, well, first I went to Chicago, did one year of internship that had, also had nothing to do with eyeballs and then went to Iowa and did three years of ophthalmology residency. And it is just, it is all eyeballs. That's all you do all day, every day. You're in an operating room, you're in clinic, you're going through different subspecialties, which believe it or not, there's like six or seven subspecialties within ophthalmology. That's right. We can like like differentiate that many parts of the eyeball to uh, devote your career to. It, it sounds crazy, but it it's true. Uh, and so going through all these different things, doing a bunch of surgery, you're cramming a lot of stuff into three years, to be honest, lots of call, lots of, uh, uh we were at a level one trauma center at the university of Iowa. And here's the thing with residency programs when you're in, and this is a, a, a big difference between community hospitals and like big academic medical centers. If there's an ophthalmology, if there's any, it doesn't matter the specialty, if there's a residency program available to people, it will get used excessively. Like, so what that means is we were ophthalmology residents, we were on call all the time. And so anything that came into the emergency department, more than likely, like 90% of the time we were going to get a call. And, uh, and so... Uh, at a at a hospital that was a, 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 had an, a catchment area of like five different states, we were busy. We were very busy. Lots of trauma. Lots. So I got I got unbelievable training. Uh, so much training that I felt comfortable getting a job right out of residency. A lot of people f- kind of feel like they need to do a fellowship to either maybe they want to do a fellowship, but also some people just wanted to feel like they need to do a fellowship just to get a little bit more training, uh, to feel comfortable out in practice. I was like, forget that I'm getting a job. I got student loans to pay back. Uh, so went out to Portland. That's where I am today. Practicing as a comprehensive ophthalmologist. Uh, so kind of just, I, I, I can see everything and, um, I'm, you know, not a subspecialist. So if it gets real in the weeds into different diseases, very specialized diseases in different areas, I have colleagues that I send patients off to, but in general, I just kind of like treat whatever I can, uh, whatever uh, patients walk through the door. And so um, that's kind of the rundown. Oh, and and then, and then after you're done with residency, then you take boards, uh, written boards, oral boards. So now I, I am board certified, in ophthalmology and uh once i i finished my final test of like 20 straight years of tests uh i that at that moment i was like i'm never learning anything ever again and i haven't no that's not true it, kind of i there was a, sp- a stretch where I, I really aggressively tried not to learn anything but yeah you know, I, I i i'm learning things mostly for comedic purposes but I'm still learning, you know, just not as aggressively as I was in training. Um, uh, So, so anyway, that's, that's my background. That's why I am qualified to speak on all these eyeball topics in case you didn't know. All right. So let's get into um, uh, the topic for today, shall we? Uh, Actually, let's take one quick break. I'll be right back. All right. So let's get into our topic Uh, this is retinal detachment. So again, a lot of people wanted this. I'll start with a patient presentation. So again, these are patients that I've completely made up. 34 year old noticed a big flash of light in their vision, like a lightning strike went off, but there was there was no lightning, no actual lightning, big flash of light followed by a sudden burst of floaters, little specks of dust. Maybe the, Or they called it a, a, a big spider web or a cloud. Or, you know, people describe them different ways. Anyway, big burst of floaters while driving. Actually, no, that's boring. All right, let's make it exciting. Uh 34-year-old noticed a big flash of light followed by a burst of floaters while riding a big wooden roller coaster. How about that? Uh, shout out to the Texas, uh, uh, I think it was the Texas Twister and Astro World I think that's what it was called uh RAP Astro World anyway anyway we had this this big wooden coaster loved it it was great very painful but it was fun uh, so anyway noticed all this uh was concerned uh and went into the emergency department so I get a call from emergency and um and what's the first thing you think I'm going to ask all right you may think after the emergency department after the physician says, oh, we got a patient had flashes and floaters uh, and, you know, they give their exam visions, you know, pretty good, pretty much normal. Uh, what's the first thing I'm going I'm to ask for? Now, you may think, some people may think, oh, what did the ultrasound say? No, 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 that's a whole can of worms. I don't think we have time for that right now during this episode. We'll talk about ultrasound at a different point, but uh, in general, I don't really care what an ultrasound would show. It doesn't really change what I do. Um, No, I'm going to ask, do you know if the patient's nearsighted? Now, this is not critical information, but it does help me risk stratify the patient because I'm worried anytime flashes of light, anytime I hear that, me and every other ophthalmologist, every other eye doctor, optometrist, We're worried about retinal tears and retinal detachments. All right. So I'm going to ask if the patient is nearsighted. Uh, Not every ophthalmologist will ask that, but I'm kind of a curious person. So I'll ask, hey, do you know patient nearsighted? Sometimes the patient knows that. Sometimes they don't. But the reason I'm asking is because of the anatomic changes that occur in the eye when someone is nearsighted. So let me explain. Eye anatomy and uh, someone, uh, I just read a comment actually on social media, like people are wanting me to have like an eye model I actually do have an eye model at work. I'm going to start like, I'm going to bring, I'm going to get an eye model here in the office so that I can actually hold up a eyeball <laughs> for you to see um, uh, for if anybody wants to watch this on, on, on YouTube. But uh, I don't have that right now. So I'm just going to describe it. The retina, the retina. I, retina, I call it a retina, but retina specialist, retina specialist will say retina, retina, the hard T that's, that's the proper pronunciation, I guess. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway. Um, the retina is think of it as the wallpaper that lines the back of your eye. Okay. So wallpaper in your house, you got wallpaper in your eye. It's, it's just, that's what covers the back half of your eye. Okay. And in that, the middle space, in that space in the back part of your eye, all right, it's filled. You can imagine, I mean, it's the eyes, it's a ball, it's a ball shape, so there's space in there. That retina is lining the back wall of the eye, and then filling the space is something called vitreous. We're born with vitreous that's fully formed, all right, it's there, it's fully formed. Over the course of our lives, that vitreous, that jelly, it's like a gel kind of thing, structure. Um, As we age, that, that vitreous breaks down, all right? So it starts to liquefy. It starts to, normally when you're born, that vitreous, that jelly, is firmly attached to the retina, that wallpaper, all right? It's all firm. It's right there. It doesn't really move. But as we age, and this starts relatively early, it starts to break down that vitreous, that jelly. It breaks down, and then it starts to pull off of your retina. And this can happen relatively early in life, especially in people who are nearsighted. And this becomes dangerous because a nearsighted person has um, a larger eye. That's part of why you're nearsighted. Uh, So you have a larger-than-average eye, And you can imagine that wallpaper, that retina has to stretch over a larger surface area of eyeball because you have a bigger eye. And, and so that retina becomes more like much thinner than it normally is. It's like 500 microns, but it gets even thinner because it has to stretch over that, over that, over that retina. And so if there's any kind of jostling of that vitreous that's a little bit more aggressive than usual or that vitreous that jelly is starting to break down as you get older it can it pulls it kind of separates it separates from the retina and when that happens it can tear the retina especially it's more likely to happen if the retina is thin because a patient is nearsighted so that's why people who are nearsighted who people who are myopic or Another way to describe it is people who have a minus prescription. So you go to the eye doctor and they tell you you're minus three, you're a minus four. You are nearsighted. Your focal point is up close. You can see up close your crappy vision far away, right? And the more nearsighted you are, the higher your risk for having a retinal tear or a retinal detachment. Now, I don't want people to be, I don't want to scare people, right? I'm not talking like it's going to happen. Like it's still very unlikely that you person listening to me talk right now are going, who is nearsighted is going to have a retinal tear or retinal detachment in your life. You just have a little bit higher chance compared to someone who's not nearsighted. So you have thinner retina and then over the course of your life, you know, things happen. You, you're, you ride a wooden roller coaster or you go skydiving or you're in a car accident. You get hit in the head. Uh, uh, all those things can jostle around that vitreous, that jelly that's filling the space in your eye that's normally attached. And when it starts to detach, it could tear the retina. Now, what's the difference between a retinal tear and a retinal detachment? Well, a retinal tear is less severe, certainly. It's just exactly what it sounds. That retina, that wallpaper, just like if you tear wallpaper in your house, well, you can tear the retina. That doesn't mean the retina is detached. All right. But what happens is when you have a tear, then fluid that's inside your eye, it can start to track underneath that tear and lift up that retina. Just like you have a tear in your wallpaper at home, right? You can, if you put your your fingers underneath it, you can lift up that wallpaper, right? Well, that's exactly what's happening. Fluid gets into that tear and starts lifting up the the wallpaper, the retina, and it can lift up the entire retina. You can have a small retinal detachment. You can have a large retinal detachment. Uh, it can um, it can uh, the entire retina can become attached, which is much less common, um, but they can be rather large. And so that is. That, that's, that's what a retinal detachment or retinal tear is. And so the emergency de- uh, department, they, 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 they hear the story. You know, they, they tell me, oh, I don't know. The patient doesn't know if they're nearsighted. And I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. It's not necessary because I'm still, even if the patient is not nearsighted, I'm still concerned about a retinal tear or retinal detachment because those are the symptoms. The reason it's a flash is because those are your light-sensing cells. Those rods and cones are in the retina, and so if it detaches or it tears, it's gonna stimulate those rods and cones and cause a big flash, right? And the floaters, the big burst of floaters that someone can have, that's because the uh, um, uh, whenever the, the retinal retina tears or detaches, it can it can kick, kick ugh, it can kick up it can kick up blood pigment because those are all there's all lots of pigment in the back of the eye. And so you get all these little specks of dust that people see in their vision. And also little bits of vitreous. You know, that's what makes floaters anyway. As we get older, I have floaters, you have floaters, we all have floaters. They're very annoying, aren't they? Aren't floaters very annoying? But all floaters represent are little bits of vitreous. As over the course of your life, that vitreous starts to break down and form these clumps and dots and spots and strands and spider webs. People describe them in all different ways. Those are floaters, and normally they don't cause any problems until they do, until they cause a retinal tear or they represent a retinal tear, retinal detachment. So that's why we always tell people, if you have any big flashes of light or a big burst of new floaters, you got to go see somebody. You got to see an eye doctor. Now, if you have an eye doctor, then you can just go and see that doctor. Like You don't necessarily, especially if it's during the week, because as we all know, it's hard to get an eye doctor on the weekend um, then, uh, call your eye doctor. Most ophthalmologists, uh, will have like an on-call doctor. Okay. So I definitely recommend you need to call somebody. If you don't have an eye doctor, you don't have a place you can go. Yes, that is uh, totally reasonable to go to the emergency department because they will most likely have an on-call ophthalmologist that they can call. Okay. So I get the call. People might be surprised. All right. That to hear me talk about this, like, that sounds terrible. That sounds uh, dangerous. That sounds like the person needs to be seen immediately. That sounds, Dr. Glockenflecken, like a pants patient. You might think it's a pants patient, but it's actually not. I don't consider, we are taking a break from the pants patients, everybody. This is weird, uh, 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 because so many people want to talk about this, I am, di- I am diverting from my pants patient conversation to uh, uh, more of a uh, maybe like prop myself up on my elbow in bed and have a conversation patient. See the patient within 24 hours type of, type of patient. That's because that's more or less what a retinal detachment or possible retinal detachment represents. So the standard of care for anybody that has flashes and floaters is that they need to be seen within 24 hours. They need to have a dilated exam within 24 hours because available research shows that for certain types of retinal detachments, uh, there's really not much of a difference, probably no difference at all um, in outcomes. Uh, you know, if, if um, uh, as long as surgery to repair a retinal detachment is done within like 48, 72 hours. So, and that's, that's, that's important because this is very specialized surgery. And so ophthalmologists, we definitely want to have our, you know, the team around us, uh, the type of, you know, operating room personnel that knows the equipment uh, that can handle those types of cases. So it is always better to have our normal team especially the retina surgery. I don't do retina surgery. That's way too specialized. I You don't want me near that, all right? But uh, And so it takes extra training to be able to do retina surgery. And honestly, there's not many many things that are cooler than reattaching a retina. That's It's really cool. But it's very specialized surgery. So we get a call from the emergency department. It sounds like a retinal detachment. If it's, you know, obviously in like the middle of the day, I'm going to say, hey, send the patient right over to clinic. I'll take a look at him right then and there. Um, If it's, you know, in the middle of the night, I'm going to see that patient first thing in the morning. So we're talking, you know, within 12 hours or so, definitely an okay thing to do because chances are, even if you go in in the middle of the night to see that retinal detachment, it's better for the patient to receive a surgery where everyone is very familiar with the equipment and knows what they're doing, and outcomes reflect that that's okay to do. All right, so that's why retina, a retinal detachment, it's an it's an urgent, it's an emergent thing, but it's not a, like a pants on fire, like get in. It's not a, like a chemical injury, like open gloves, like some of the things I've been talking about already. All right, so it's it's a little bit less than a pants patient, uh, but still something we take very very seriously. And there's even some research that has been done looking at certain types of retinal detachments that maybe some, some people even think like up to a week is okay for certain types of detachments, but that's a little bit, even for me, that's a little bit too far into the weeds of retina land. Uh, there's a reason I didn't do retina. Number one, it's hard. I don't think I'm smart enough, but also, you know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just like, I already felt kind of like, I really, I'm just, I'm devoting my career to the eyeball after learning all of that stuff about the human body. And then I'm like, really? I learned all that stuff about the eyeball. Now I'm just going to like do retina stuff. I don't know. It's teach their own, like, God bless my retina colleagues. I'm so glad I have them because I take way less call because of them. Um, All right. So that is, so we've, so, so I, I see the patient. And I dilate their eye. I look in there. I see the retinal detachment. We get a plan with um, the uh, my retina colleague. You know, I'll get them on the phone. And be like, hey, when do you want to see this patient? When do you want, to... and then they take care. Of it. They go into retinal land, and then that's that's. And so the, the surgeries, the the way to treat a retinal detachment. There's different ways to do it. Uh, and I'm not going to go into too much depth about this, but if it's just a retinal tear, so I'm talking about the wallpaper's torn, but there's no fluid getting in underneath it. All right then you can actually spot weld that tear with a laser. Pew, 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 pew. You like that? You like the laser Laser sound effect? I love I, I love lasers. lasers. I still do some retina lasers. Like lasers are, that's something that m- most ophthalmologists, we all get trained to do. You just spot weld the tear. Because most of the time, a retinal tear is happening not right in the center of the retina, where the good, really good vision is. It's out in the peripheral retina. So this is retina that's not as critical to a patient's vision. So you can put some, some, uh, some laser burns around that tear, spot weld it so fluid can no longer track underneath it. That's how you prevent a retinal detachment. So when we treat a retinal tear, that retinal tear is going to be there forever. It's, all, it's not going away. But we can keep it from getting worse. That's the goal of a treatment for retinal tear. Retinal detachment that's different, all right. That requires different types of treatments. Uh, you you can um, uh, sometimes you can treat it with just a gas bubble. You put a gas in the in the patient's eye that basically pushes the um, the retina against the wall of the eye. All right, so it just closes that gap and. Retina is now attached again. You can put a buckle, like a little belt around the eye to reoppose the retina to the wall of the eye. Uh, you can use a variety of lasers and and um, uh, other types of gases and oil. Oil is used. There's so many different things, ways to attach the retina. That's about as in-depth as I'm going to get with it. So that is retinal detachment, everybody. I honestly, like, what more do you need to know? That's way more than you need to know. But hopefully you can impress some of your friends at a dinner party or something with your knowledge of retinal detachment. All right, let's take a quick break. All right, here we go. We're going to do some, uh, wrap this up with a few little things here. Um, As always, here's your uh, don't do that eyeball tip of the week. Your don't-do-that eyeball tip of the week. All right, this is a, a specific one, very specific. <laughs> okay, here we go. If you have retina surgery and you get a gas bubble in your eye, which is very common, stay off of airplanes for a few days. Trust me. Now, your doctor, your ophthalmologist, your surgeon will tell you this. That will They'll tell you that several times. Do not get on a plane. All right. The reason is, as you can probably guess, gas, as you go higher up in altitude, expands. Air expands. Gases all, like most gases will expand at higher altitudes. You know, when you have like a a bag of chips and it starts to kind of blow up or you have a water bottle and it starts to blow up on the airplane? Well, you don't want that happening with your eye. All right. So uh, it'll, um, the gas will expand in your eye and result in unrelenting pain, nausea, vomiting, and blindness. So if you have a surgery and get a gas bubble in your eye, please don't get on a plane. Stay at your regular normal altitude, please. That is your don't-do-that eyeball tip of the week. Don't get on a plane with a gas bubble. Uh, Okay, here is your ophthalmology fun fact. I always like to give you guys a little fun fact. Um, uh, for my fun fact today I decided to uh, to explore a little um, uh, specialty overlap Now I, there's not you know usually for most specialties I can find something that overlaps with ophthalmology uh, So today we're going to do orthopedic surgery the orthopedic surgeons and ophthalmologists overlap <laughs> just for a couple different things this is fat emboli syndrome if you have a, uh, fracture to a long bone, you can get fat that moves in the bloodstream and goes to the retina vasculature and causes problems. You can get, uh, um, basically the emboli. So you can get, uh, uh, like a little, um, uh, like a little stroke to the eye basically where certain parts of the retina can die off, uh, and basically obstruct blood flow and you get a little stroke. So, uh, there you go. There you have it. There's, that's the ophthalmology fun fact: is fat embolized syndrome. If you break your bone, get a long bone fracture of your femur or tibia or whatever the other long bones are. I don't pretend to know exactly all of them. Arms and legs, everybody. That's what I know. I know ribs aren't one of them. Um, then uh, you can have repercussions to the eye. There you go. Impress your friends. All right, next, it's time for Explain Like I'm 8, except this time we're going to do Explain Like I'm 12. I or oh, 12. guys, yeah, not 12 yet. Uh, Explain Like I'm 11. So I'm going to have my 11-year-old come in and read a question. So I know if you, like, try and touch your eye, don't ask how I know this. 11-year-old kids are weird. And they try that kind of stuff. But anyway, if you try and touch your eye, it works-ish. Unless you try and touch the center of your eye where your pupil is. So my question is, there's like some sort of reflex that won't let you do that. So my question is, um, if you somehow didn't have that reflex and you actually did touch your pupil with your f- finger or something else, what would happen? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> actually, I love that. Um, so... What she was saying is that uh, she touches her eye. First of all, I'm going to have, to have a conversation with her about this. But um, uh, if you touch the white part of your eye, your conjunctiva, you can do that without much problem, right? It doesn't really affect you. It's not painful. Um, you can feel it, but it's it's okay. What she's talking about touching the center of your eye, that's your cornea. So the cornea is that clear covering on the front of the eye that is uh one of if not the most sensitive part of your body if you've ever had a scratch on the surface of your eye you know how painful the cornea can be and with the reflex that she's talking about is if you try to touch your cornea you're going to blink it's it's because it's the eye doesn't like that Eye does not the eye does not want to be messed with i feel like i need to tell everybody on TikTok that because the things i've seen my god But you have a reflex, Um, it's the corneal reflex, it's cranial nerve five, uh, and uh, it causes you to kind of recoil, blink, uh, because your eye doesn't want to, your cornea does not want to be touched. You have corneal nerves, it's very sensitive. If you don't have that reflex, and there's lots of things that can cause a decline in that, in the sensation of the cornea and damage to that cranial nerve those nerve endings. Uh, the most common one, um, probably being diabetes. That's a big one. Uh, uh you lose, start to lose sensation. Herpes, herpes infections, repeated herpes infections. Uh, uh, this is herpes type one, not the genital kind. It can cause a loss of sensation on the cornea. I don't know if I'm doing a good job of explaining this, like, uh, to like an 11 year old, but uh, anyway, you lose sensation uh, and then uh, bad things can happen. You can start, you can get infections more easily. It's just a lot. It's not good when your cornea loses sensation. So that's what would happen. If you lost that reflex, then uh, you wouldn't blink as much. You'd be more prone to infection because the cornea could break down. You can lose that epithelial layer, uh, And it's, it's a big problem. You'd get scarring of your cornea. Uh, you would get blood vessels that start to grow into the cornea and make it opaque because the body's trying to heal the cornea. We see that happening. And so you don't want the cornea to lose its sensation, even though it's very painful, it serves a purpose. So thank you for that. Very good question. Um, and we're going to wrap up here with one more thing. I want to include a little Q&A now. Now that I'm getting lots of feedback, lots of questions from people, I have a QA and uh, a or I have questions um, that, I've, I've, that, I've, that we've compiled my, with the help of my producers. For our q and I have a question that comes from Patty. Patty sent me an email and, said, uh, and asked about uh, bags under your eyes, uh, particularly, she mentioned after a, having a surgery. Uh, but how about just bags in general? You know, these things. I got a little bit of them here. What does that represent? Why does that happen? Well, um, a lot of times what bags are is the orbital fat. So behind your eye, that orbit, we've talked about the orbit before. Um, you have that space back behind the eye. It's full of fat. It's got other things in it, but it also has fat that we call orbital fat. Well, as you get older, the tissues. The septum there's a, basically a tissue layer that keeps that fat behind the eye. It starts to relax, so that fat starts to move and migrate forward, and you can see it as bags. And so, is that little puffiness under the eyelid is just like a little bit of fat that's starting to move and migrate forward. Um, and it's just it's something that happens. It can be treated. There's cosmetic surgery that'll that'll fix that, but uh, it's very expensive, by the way. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that's what bags represent. And whenever you have a surgery or you wake up in the morning, we're all a little bit more puffy because blood and, and, has, you know, we've been laying down. So blood's, it's pulling in the head. Uh, or if you have a surgery, there's inflammation, fat can swell. It can take on fluid. And so it looks puffier. So that's, that's what bags are and why it's, sometimes it's, they're worse. Like if you've been crying a lot or, uh, or if, you know, if when you wake up in the morning, it's a little bit worse. And then later on in the day, as things kind of settle down, maybe your feet and your ankles are more swollen, but your bags aren't as bad. So anyway, it, it kind of fluctuates like that. So that's, um, that's, uh, the bags under your eyes. I think we'll stop there. This has gone on a little long, but I know there's a lot to cover with retinal tears or retinal detachments. Uh, and so thank you all for listening. Uh, I'll, I'll probably get back to, uh, some pants patients. There's a few more that I wanted to get to do, but I have so many topics that we can talk about. Uh, some that are less gross than others. Uh, some that are just vision oriented vision questions. People have visual snow is another one that's going to come up. Uh, so anyway, we'll, uh, oh, I'm excited for the weeks ahead. Thanks for joining me. And thank you to uh, my producers As always, I didn't do a good job of thanking them on the first few episodes, but they do a lot of work to put this thing together. So I appreciate their help, and um, we'll see you next time.